1: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod, or text WonderyPod to 500, 500
0: Hi everyone, Peter Greenberg here and back with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, I'm speaking with legendary writer Pico Ayer and our conversation about not when we will all travel again, but how. And his uncanny prediction that we've had too many predictions and the nature of calculated risks. Then I'll be joined by Zach Deitwald. He's the author of Young China, about how COVID-19 affected the two economic powerhouses of the U.S. and China, and answer the question, can the two really exist without each other, and how travel and tourism is now rebounding in the region, what it means to you, and how we move forward. And then, journalist Chris Elliott, about the long trip home, how he and his family were evacuated back to the U.S. in the middle of the pandemic, and what you need to know about things like repatriation flights, not to mention travel insurance. First up, Pico Iyer, My next guest, a favorite of mine, one of my favorite authors. He's written more than 15 books, including The Art of Stillness and uh, a, Beginner's, a Beginner's Guide to Japan. One of my favorite essays I've ever read by him was Video Night in Kathmandu, which I, mem- I mention every time I talk to him. Uh, but he just wrote an essay that I, that I want to share with you. Uh, and it's called An End to Predicted Endings especially about travel right now and of course his name pico ayer how are you sir
2: really good to hear to hear your voice again peter
0: and uh, i'm in new york you're in santa barbara which i fully expected you to be in japan this time but but uh, you're back in in santa barbara and you you, you wrote in this essay uh, about you know walking the streets of buenos aires not too long ago the end of january and people who were just you know about to get on cruise ships or getting off cruise ships Uh, all the images from COVID-19, what it means to our, you know, to many of our deep-seated emotions and fears right now. And what I've said all along is we've gone from a culture that had FOMO, fear of missing out, to FOGO, fear of going out. Uh, And everybody's predicting something. Uh, My guess is you're not predicting that.
2: Yes, because I think uh, the virus has made a mockery of predictions. It's reminded us we never really know what's going to happen tomorrow or even tonight. But I think you and I, Peter, agreed in two things, which is we um, we need to travel and we want to travel. And that urge is as strong now in many of us, I think, as five years ago and should be sustained. I'm guessing that you and I are going to meet in an airport four months from now and Many other things will have happened since the virus to to make it a distant memory.
0: Well, I hope you're right, but in the the process of getting to that unnamed airport, (laughs) we're still dealing with some serious fear out there.
2: Uh, Yes, we're dealing with um, higher airfares probably. Uh, It's certainly going to be a different experience um, flying in the next few months. But I think apart from anything, many of us have to fly to keep up with our loved ones. We have to fly, I know you do, to do our jobs. Um, So you're right, I was in Japan in the middle of April, but my 89-year-old mother here in Santa Barbara came out of the hospital, and of course I had to come and be with her. Um, Two days ago, my wife... uh, came over to join me in Santa Barbara because she was stuck by herself in Japan. Um, I had to give a lecture in the middle of the pandemic, so I had to fly across the Pacific for a day. And I don't think that kind of thing can be reversed.
0: No, I I think you're right. So then that brings up the next item here on The Prices Right. You know, (laughs) how we're going to travel, not whether we're going to travel, but how we're going to travel.
2: Maybe with a few more inconveniences and challenges. All of us got used to taking off our shoes after a Failed shoe bomber probably 18 years ago, and maybe we'll have to get used to no hot beverages, no airline magazines, and wearing masks. But I must say, when I flew back into the U.S. last month, it was one of the easiest flights I've ever taken. The the planes had plenty of passengers, but um, customs has never been um, swifter, and um, the planes are, of course, in better shape than ever in terms of cleanliness and uh, upkeep. So. I'm, I, I'm not fearful. I think we have very short attention spans now, and we're always talking about the end of history, the end of irony, the end of who knows what. And then six months later, we've forgotten we were ever predicting an ending.
0: <laughs> hey, let's go back to Y2K. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. You know, I flew to, with my aged mother to Easter Island on Y2K because I thought I don't I'm you know, I'm I'm not going to believe what I read in the media and this is a perfect time to be on an island where the ultimate luxury is a piece of wood. Um so we saw in the 21st century on Easter uh, Island uh, uh, while I, others were fretting about Y2K.
0: Well, I wasn't that far from you at least in terms of one about longitude I suppose. Uh, I was on the in, in one of the Lao archipelago of, uh, of Fiji. Because in those days, I was working for NBC, and they wanted me there at the dateline just in case all hell broke loose. Like, what would happen?
2: <laughs> but, you know. Wonderful. That we really were close. Yeah, and I was filing an article for Time magazine about let, welcome to the 21st century. And, of course, in Easter Island, there weren't too many computers to crash in any case. Um, and I understand why people would be apprehensive about cruise ships and airlines and all the rest of that. But um, I think the need to, to you know this better than anybody, the need to be acquainted with the rest of the world, to learn about other cultures, to remind ourselves of how much we don't know about the rest of the world. Those are fundamental human longings, like the urge to eat or the urge to fall in love, and they're not going to go away.
0: Well, certainly not the urge to fall in love. Of course, our passion for travel, too. we talked about the end of history, of course, Y2K, the end of irony after 9-11. And, uh, and now, is it really the end of travel? And I think both Pico and I agree, it's not. We're going to have to adapt. We're going to have to adjust, which, by the way, is the key to success in life, is how you adjust. But are we possibly, Pico, evolving into a, a different class of travel where people can, going back to the original days of the, you know, the jet age, where the only people who could fly were the elite who could afford it?
2: I, of course, I really hope not. And I think even people who are not very affluent have loved ones in very different places now. Whether um, you know, whether people coming up from Mexico to work in California, or people who are scattered in every kind of way. Some a woman, an old lady in Bangalore, who's. Sun works in Silicon Valley, they have to remain in touch with one another and to meet one another. Um, I was inspired. I think I read just yesterday in The Economist that Greece and Italy are hoping to be receiving uh, travelers this summer because, of course, they depend on the tourist industry. And Japan has been enjoying this wonderful tourist boom the last few years. And Japan has, as you know, been relatively spared by this virus. So I'm hoping in a couple of months um, everyone will be flocking back into that beautiful country or not everybody but certainly enough people
0: (laughs) right well you know there's a silver lining here what were we talking about four months ago pico over tourism
2: yeah and 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 climate change and yes pollution and all that
0: yeah so now you can see to the bottom of the Venice lagoons you can see some clear air over India and China somebody sent me a a picture the other day of dolphins swimming in the Bosphorus in Istanbul and you never see that
2: that's right. so there, I mean, here I'm yeah. sitting in Santa Barbara. I've never seen in in June the islands across the ocean so very, very clear. And you know, when I think about lockdown and and the enforced lockdown we've suffered, um, I remember I've been to North Korea a couple of times, and I've seen what it is never to be able to travel. In that case, it's, it's enforced, and it's it's not healthy, and uh, it, it goes against everything in our human nature. So now that people will get. Free to travel again. I don't think anybody wants to commit himself or herself to a voluntary North Korea.
0: No, of course. If you look at North Korea from the space station, uh, you don't see any lights at night.
2: There we go. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Yeah. It's not pretty. Uh, But the bottom line is I got to go back to the cost of travel because we're changing the business models of travel. Every airline has announced we're coming back smaller if we're coming back at all. Uh, When you decrease capacity, It doesn't take a genius in the law of supply and demand to realize fares are going to go
3: up.
2: Yes. And so I've been going back and forth um, to Japan for 32 years now. And I was checking the prices a couple of days ago, and they look to be 40% higher than before. So I will probably make fewer trips. I'll probably count my pennies um, in other ways. But, you know, I have a mother in California and a wife who's usually in Japan, and I can't afford to neglect either of them. So I'm prepared to eat out you know, 20 times less, fewer times in the year to make sure that I can make that trip to see my wife and to see my mother.
0: Well, think about this. In cities like Los Angeles or Santa Barbara or Atlanta, I picked those three in particular, one because you're in one right now, uh, where people don't really use their kitchens, you're now seeing people eating at home five to six nights a week if they're not ordering in, and these once underutilized kitchens have become the center point for conversation.
2: Yes, people remember, and enjoying every aspect of the kitchen, remembering all the things that we've been missing all these years. Um, Skyping long-lost friends, talking to our our family around the dinner table, uh, getting a chance to listen to music or take a walk or read a book. Um, So I'm, I'm, I've always been, as you said, I wrote a book called The Art of Stillness, so I'm a great believer in the wonders to be found while staying at home, but it's hard to put into perspective everything that you're getting at home unless you travel, and I think we need that balance, like breathing in and breathing out almost.
0: Yes, and of course, for those listening to me right now who might even be in your kitchens, tell the truth. You've been doing a lot of baking lately. (laughs) You have. It's it's comfort food time. It's it, it gives you such a warm, cuddly feeling to be able to take something out of the oven, right? I mean, people are doing that. There was a shortage of flour in New York. i never heard of such a thing, but there was.
2: <laughs> yes, and when, again, when you go to um, the economics of travel, of course, most of us remember the days when we were 21 years old. And we figured that we could go and spend a year traveling around Southeast Asia for the same price... That it would cost to spend a month in New York City or Los Angeles and we thought rather than being tethered to a job let's go and and explore the world and actually save money in the process. Not everybody's in a position to do that but um, it's still more possible than we sometimes remember.
0: And based on what's going on in this country right now travel starts to look pretty good.
2: Yes Uh, I mean just imagine being on a beach in Thailand.
0: My thanks to Pico IA. Zach Deitwald normally lives in China, but we find him this week in the Vermont woods, sheltering in place, but talking about China, the U.S., and the way forward. My next guest, I I never see him where he lives. He never sees me where I live. We usually see each other in like third or fourth world countries. Uh, Someone has to describe what a fourth world country is to me, but he's the author of Young China and the founder of the Young China Group. His name is Zach Deitwald. Hey, Zach.
4: Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, of course, I know you because of of all the stuff that we've done in terms of travel and talking about, you know, all the new trends, all the new developments. But it was based on on a demographic shift. It was based on a different set of circumstances financially, uh, demographically, and, of course, geographically, because for a long period of time until just recently, right, you were over in China. And, uh, and then you're, you're back right now but you're watching the world change, turned upside down, inside out, and the real question has to become, and I'm sure you're getting it all the time, it's not just when will we travel again, I mean, that's the obvious question, but where and how?
4: Absolutely, and, and one of the interesting things that I've been considering recently is how I think of China right now as a potential lesson from the near future. Like I know when we talk about China, we immediately think of government, right, which is sort of big and scary, but if you look past that towards the people, just like you and me, uh, there's a lot you can sort of learn from China who is is opening up their economy about two or three months before we're doing it here, and travel is the same way. Uh, So one of the things that we saw in sort of the first global experiment in travel post-COVID, China already did that for us. They had their May Day holiday, which is sort of like a Labor Day holiday, May 1st through 5th. And so the first sort of inklings of what it takes for travel to get back on its feet what it looks like with these first sort of timid steps after re-emerging from sheltering at home. Uh, China's already taken those for us, and the numbers were really interesting.
0: And, you know, we see what they're doing in terms of where they're investing their money, where they're they're developing travel destinations. We already know they've got the most advanced airports, uh, and they're building more and more all the time. So I guess the question then becomes— you know, we just saw something earlier this week, right, where China was not letting U.S. airlines in. Then the U.S. said they are going to ban all the Chinese airlines for coming in. That lasted, what, 18 hours? And now right. and now the ban is lifted because that truly shows you the power of travel and tourism.
4: Absolutely. And, and there's this sort of awkward political dance that's getting in the way of the capitalist impulse, which is that, look, you have the first and second largest outbound tourism spenders in the world in China and the United States both tourism powerhouses. So one can't really exist without the other. But I have to say, and, and this goes back to this, this sort of last Labor Day travel holiday, the prerequisite for, for Chinese travel, not for just the traveler in general, when, when we were uh, interviewing people, when we were reading secondary research about, OK, how do they feel safe? Um, safety is actually key. And so from China, I, I have to say you're, you're, you're getting real concern about what's going on here. Um, And and we have to ask ourselves whether or not that's justified or not. So a lot of the new cases coming that are arising in China are coming from travel. So it's not just the United States. They've been shutting down from from pretty much everywhere. If you have a foreign passport and you're trying to get into China uh, up until these last few days, you could not do that. So it's mostly Chinese nationals going back and forth. But now they're starting to open up new routes to to foreign nationals, particularly Koreans, um, for, from, for people from Norway, the prerequisite being, OK, you have to be coming from a place that's been handling the outbreak well, and then we can start to, to talk about tourism again.
0: So ironically, Taiwan and Korea.
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a great example of how, you know, no matter how politically fraught a relationship is between two countries, when there is that, you know, it's, it's a great example of how capitalism can be used for good, can be used as a cultural conduit. And and Taiwan and Korea are two great examples of countries, democracies by the way, who have handled the COVID outbreak extraordinarily well. Uh, and so they're also the places that are beginning their touristic relationship or restarting their touristic relationship with China once again, which is a massive part of the Taiwanese and the Korean economy.
0: You know, when we talk about the Chinese traveler, uh, you and I both know that, I mean, they, they are astounding in terms of their average spend. Uh, A Chinese traveler in the United States during a a one week long trip could blow probably five or $6,000 on average. Uh, Americans don't spend that kind of money. Uh, And so that's a huge impact on our economy or anywhere the Chinese choose to travel. Uh, You know, when 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 the pandemic first was announced and travel started being restricted, the guys who really took the big hit were Western Europe. I was saying, take a look at where the Chinese would normally travel. And that's what's getting hit the hardest uh, in their own economies, like France uh, and 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 in Italy and Spain. Uh, and what's interesting now is Hawaii, because right. they haven't re- they haven't reopened up, um, and not and they're probably not going to do it till the middle to the end of July at the earliest, because they're they're not just a state; they're a state of islands and they have always been fiercely protective of their environment, whether it's you know, uh, invasive species or agricultural goods, and now the new invasive species is us, um, right. the mainlanders, right? So, and how much of that market of the tourism that drives that economy in Hawaii is from Asia?
4: A lot. An increasing amount as well. And, and you're exactly right, Peter, in that there's so many other sort of economic factors wrapped into travel. And I'll give you two examples. So first is luxury. China has become one of the largest purchasers of, of luxury goods around the world, which is why, uh, you know, you talk about Italy, you talk about France, you talk about Spain. It makes sense that they're hit hard by this. Two right. thirds of all luxury purchases that that Chinese citizens do are actually done outside of the country. They do it while they're traveling. So if you're not traveling, suddenly the luxury, com- those luxury brands, those luxury companies are being hit hard. That's one the second, and this one really impacts the United States, is education. One third of every single study abroad student in the United States comes from China. One in three. Can from I stop you right war. there? Can
0: I stop you right there? Please. Came from China.
4: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because no, because you're, of the administration. Exactly
0: right. Yeah. Yeah, because the administration's so, stopping that coming in.
4: Exactly. And 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 you know what? The colleges are scared. You know, these are these are the top tier. Of, of Chinese spenders, they're paying full tuition. In fact, a lot of our education is propped up by these international students, not just Chinese, but China is the biggest portion there. And for instance, when this trade war first began, uh, you know, a year or two ago, depending on how you measure it, there were universities that were taking out insurance policies, uh, expecting to have a drop in enrollment from, from Chinese nationals. So, you know, and, and you have to think about the local businesses that are propped up, the real estate. So that there's a big cascading effect It looks at first just like tourism, which is already large, but then it also spills over into luxury, into education, into a lot of uh, different consumer sectors that we don't necessarily think about. So this sort of this sort of thing is bad for business across the across the board.
0: It is. And one of the things we're going to talk about and we have talked about on the show before are the Chinese airlines. They've parked hundreds and hundreds of planes that may not fly ever again. And these are and these are relatively new aircraft. Uh, because it's going to take a while to ramp back up, if at all, if they're not going to be feeling safe. You know, we talk about the American traveler and our comfort level. How do the Chinese feel about visiting New York right now?
4: They're they're scared. In fact, you know, I know a lot of the the study abroad community, and and have and have you know have have done talks and and have contacts within the sort of Chinese national um, groups on different campuses, and they report a lot of students going home. Uh, And they're going home because they're nervous about infection. They're going home because of how it seems sort of state by state. We're handling it in different ways. Uh, This is before the protests, mind you. So, Zach, you know, we
0: talk about, you know, the the Chinese exchange students going back home. They might not be returning. Uh, We talk about the foreign exchange. You know, when, when the pandemic was first announced, one of my first calls was to a friend of mine in Paris and say, look out your window. Is there a line in front of Louis Vuitton? The answer was no, the Chinese aren't here. Uh huh. and one by one you can begin to see the economic impact which is not short term, it's long term. So if you combine uh you know, basically travel bans or selectively admitting people with the fear of even coming in the first place, I mean it's one thing to say that 2020 may be a wrap, 2021 may be a write off as
4: well. It's it's concerning. I have to I have to tell you it's concerning and you have to remember that when you look at how we approach um, quarantine, how we approach sort of containment measures. Uh, It's not just about making us feel good. And it's become such a political thing. It's so much left and right. But but if if you take a step away, the only way that Chinese travelers and travelers around the world are willing to enter a store, willing to enter a restaurant, willing to go to your hotel, is if they feel safe with the people around you. And after months of being told, don't trust your neighbor, right, that you're, you know, a stranger could get you sick. This idea that we that that a traveler will go to a place that's not ensuring their safety or there's still a high level of volatility is just a little bit, you know, it's it's outside of their comfort zone. Uh, and then it's also outside of what the government allows them to do. Uh, sure. But, so, you, know,
0: you're, you know, you're talking about the Chinese traveler, but aren't you really talking about a global traveler right now? I mean, where would you go right now, Zach, without a, without getting a guarantee for yourself?
4: I think, you're, you know, this is this is what I'm talking about, Peter, is that we're not talking about China and the United States, which is so entrenched in political, uh, you know, baggage. We're just talking about the human condition. You know, you want your kids to be safe. You want your, your spouse to be safe. You want to feel safe yourself. And the idea of venturing beyond that, you know, one of the optimistic points is that we've seen a huge desire to travel uh, articulated throughout China as well as the United States, but it's already started to articulate itself uh, through domestic travel in China. The prerequisite is that people feel safe. And one one, one aspect of this impulse is, is actually an upgrading from the traveler. People feel that nicer equals safer. So they're willing to splurge a little bit more if they feel like a nicer brand or a nicer hotel or a nicer destination or property gives them more peace of mind. It's worth it for them.
0: You know, you're reminding me of going back to the future because when the Chinese first started to travel, they did so in sort of like concentric circles. They stayed regional. And then the the next year that circle grew and, and grew and grew and then all of a sudden they crossed borders. Well, we're sort of going back to the future because that's what's happening in America now. As we begin to inch back, not bounce back, but as we begin to inch back, we're taking like 100 mile road trips or Three hundred mile one tank trips. We might cross one state border. I mean, we're sort of dipping our toe in the water. Is that what the Chinese are going to do too?
4: Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've uh, spoken with a few of my friends who run who run startups around China in the tourism industry, and they have moved all of their international product to national, and they're focusing on places that you can reach with through a train ride, and they're doing you know there's vigorous health checks at the train station or a car ride, and that's it. So they're actually creating new destinations, new travel packages, new products, because they recognize that people, like you said, are sort of inching out of their home, not running all the way across the globe. People don't feel comfortable with that yet. And you have to honor that.
0: So in the law of unintended consequences, this is the year that the Chinese get to rediscover their own country. And this is the year that Americans get to rediscover America.
4: Which 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 are both beautiful. I was actually commenting recently, I think one of the biggest similarities that China and the United States have is, you know, we, we focus so much on the cities, but the land is gorgeous. And, and I think a, a really great outcome of this could be that people rediscover a lot of incredible American destinations, just as I've seen a lot of Chinese friends be like, you know, I'll tell you what, from Shanghai, I, I usually travel to Paris or I travel to, to Seoul, But suddenly I'm realizing that there's there's beautiful places like Yellow Mountain just in my backyard that I'd overlooked for so long.
0: All right. So now I've got to ask you the question. You're back in the United States. Uh, Where are you going to travel first?
4: So I'm already doing it Peter like I was I was cooped up in New York for 2 months and and as soon as I could I got out. I'm in the Adirondacks right now. I'm going to go to Vermont after this. Uh, I'm going to go to a lake and you know I I can work from you know wherever there is a computer so I um, I I'm looking forward to getting out into nature especially after being so so sort of packed in for for months and months. Uh, and where there's fewer people, you know, I have to tell you that when I go into a supermarket in New York, watching people be unsure about the rules, watching people be unsure about what, what distance will keep them safe, gives me a level of anxiety that doesn't help me relax and have fun. So I'm trying to find restfulness in, in the great spaciousness of our, of our beautiful country.
0: So what you're doing is you're ordering in from Vermont.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Essentially. Yes
0: uh-huh. See, a whole different dynamic is at work here, right? We're changing how we work. We're changing where we work. I, I'm I'm a big believer that uh, commercial office real estate right now has got to be flatlining. Uh, that means new car sales has got to drop because people don't want to have to do the commute anymore. Uh, and that'll also probably change the choices that we make when we travel. Not if we travel, but when we travel. Zach Deitwald, the author of Young China and the founder of the Young China Group, temporarily ensconced in the northeast of the United States, uh, where there are few people and a lot of trees. Zach, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Zach. You read him in USA Today in the Washington Post, author, advocate, and journalist Chris Elliott on his one wild ride, getting out of a foreign country with no flights and few options in the middle of the pandemic, and just a few lessons learned. Joining me now is an old buddy of mine. We've traveled the world together. He's an author, an advocate, journalist. You'll see him in USA Today all the time on his weekly column. He wrote this piece for the Washington Post, which is why I had to call him to come on the show. His name Chris Elliott. Hello, Chris, and welcome back. He's back home in Spokane, Washington. I'm here. Yeah. Good. You sound like you're in a wind tunnel.
3: I know. I told you the audio wasn't so great. But yeah. <laughs> I'm in Spokane. I am actually. I just got done quarantining in Uncle Pete's basement. Uh, after getting back from France. So uh, I'm happy to say we are all symptom free.
0: And that's really the part of the story I want to talk about. You were one of the ones that we read about every once in a while who got trapped overseas and had great difficulty getting back. I mean, thousands of Americans on these so called repatriation flights, supposedly operated by the State Department or at least coordinated by the State Department. But you went a different route, didn't you?
3: I did, yes. Well, you know, I mean, we were stuck in France. We were on a three-year trip to Europe, my kids and I, and there we were in beautiful Nice, France, with no way to get home. All the flights had been canceled. There were still one or two, but getting a seat on them was really difficult. So we decided to stay put for a little while, and then we decided to try to get back.
0: Now, the question is, how did you do that?
3: Well, I'm glad you asked, because we happened to have coverage through a company called MedJet. I'm sure you know MedJet.
0: I know them very well because I've been carrying their card for almost 20 years, and I can knock on some wood here. You can hear me knock on the wood right now. I've never had to use it, but I always thought about it as if you got sick or injured, they would get you back home, medical repatriation and evacuation. But then the word evacuation comes into play, doesn't it?
3: It does. And actually, they have a plan that allows you to also get security evacuations, and it's operated through a company called Focus Point. And I didn't even know I had this coverage. So my uh, travel agent, so uh, I I work with a company called Valerie Wilson Travel, who I know you know too.
0: She's been on the show, yeah.
3: uh, Yep, great agency, affiliated with Virtuoso, one of my favorites. And so uh, I called her up and I said, "Uh, we're trying to get back from France here. And, you know, uh, what should I do? And I mentioned that I had Medjet coverage. And... She said, you should give him a call. So I did. And within about 10 minutes, they had already begun the process of getting me repatriated, which basically meant that they would make all the arrangements uh, for a flight from Nice back to Spokane, and they would take care of everything. And they really did. It was the most unbelievable thing.
0: Let me get back to some of the the, the basic nickels and dimes here, because when I read other stories about people trying to get home from all over the world and that the State Department announced they were organizing these flights. The State Department may have been organizing the flights, but they weren't paying for them, were they?
3: No, in fact, uh, there were no repatriation flights from France at all. They were doing them very selectively, uh, and, uh, and there, were, there was no option for us to get home uh, through the State Department. And you're right, they are charging people. So really, for us, the, the only option was to book a flight ourselves, which would have cost a lot of money, just to give you an idea, you know, you go on the Google flights and you start searching and the flights are coming up at like 10,000 euros to get you home, which is, that's enough to bankrupt you. I mean, it's crazy. So I was, I felt very lucky that we had Medjet and Point.
0: All right. So you had them, they're coordinating your flight home. Who's still, who's still paying for that flight though?
3: They are. They are.
0: Love Uh, that. Okay.
3: Now I got it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not like travel insurance where you pay upfront and then they reimburse you. Uh, it's very turnkey end to end. You you tell them where you are, and then they say, "Okay, here are your flights. Does this look good?" And then you say, "Yeah," and you don't see a bill.
0: All right. So I've got to ask the world's most ridiculously bad taste question: Did you ever find out how much they paid to get you home?
3: Um, yeah. I mean, I I didn't ask them, but I had. It, it turns out that I had already booked the same, the exact same itinerary myself, and. Uh, it would have cost. It, it did cost me, and I have to disclose. I actually pulled a few strings to get a refund once I knew that I was getting covered. Um, but it it cost somewhere between five and six thousand dollars just for the tickets, and then also they were really nice. They upgraded us, so I think that they probably paid a little more than that.
0: <laughs> I love the upgrade part. Uh, so the bottom line is, you know, one of the biggest issues, and you've covered this so many times, as have I. And one of the most misleading issues is travel insurance, because you can't complete a transaction online when you're buying a ticket without opting in or out of travel insurance. And they're basically saying to you, you know, buy peace of mind, blah, 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 blah. But what they don't reveal on that page, and they may not even reveal it until page nine of their website, which nobody ever gets to, is all the exclusions that make that policy essentially worthless.
3: Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that travel insurance, if not properly studied, can be an extreme ripoff. And that's one of the things I write about a lot. I have a column in Forbes that I I almost exclusively write about travel insurance. You really have to make sure that you're reading all the fine print. And now, of course, uh, that this has all happened and you have some bizarre things like travel insurance companies with huge red letters at the top of their page saying, don't buy travel insurance if you're concerned about coronavirus because we're not going to cover you. Uh, oh,
0: nice for them to now, say that now.
3: Well, yeah, they should have said it before, but we, had, of course, we didn't know that there was going to be a pandemic. But now uh, the big thing is cancel for any reason. But even with cancel for any reason, you've got to make sure that you know the full price of the uh, of your vacation is is covered. Otherwise, they're not going to. Uh, pay. You, and and you only get something like uh, seventy to seventy five percent of a refund with cancel for any reason. And it's twice as much as garden variety, name perils, insurance.
0: Whoops. <laughs> I suppose people would argue that something is better than nothing, but you've still got to get down to a definition of terms that's mutually agreeable. And most of the time, people either either don't have the patience or they literally can't understand the policy language to know what they're buying.
3: True again. And that's why you have to read that. And uh, my, my recommendation is that you work with a very good travel agent. Shout out to Valerie Wilson and her company to make sure that they at least understand what's covered because then they can help you.
0: So here's my question. From the time you, you said, okay, I got to get out of here. I want to go back home to the time you actually landed. How much time are we talking about?
3: Um, 22 hours, more or less.
0: Nine That's great. Zones. Oh, my God. Yeah. I thought that that you did great. Because I still have oh, friends yeah. of mine in Ecuador and in uh, and in Argentina who couldn't get out at all.
3: Yeah, no, I, it was, well, we, we were going through a couple of possible itineraries. Uh, a couple of them were through New York with an overnight. And then there was one with an overnight in New York and Dallas. So it would have been three days. And I thought that the the chances of us getting infected were too high to to risk it. So in the end, we were very lucky that Air France had a flight from Paris to LAX. So we we took that one.
0: And then up north after that.
3: And then Seattle, right? Abandoned airport terminals, people with face masks, pointing thermometers at your head, all that. Yeah. And (laughs) And then the puddle jumper from Seattle to Spokane.
0: Well, the good news is you made it back. The better news is you had the insurance. Um, Again, if there's any lesson to be learned from COVID-19 and travel, it is get somebody who can actually explain you, explain you the policy language, or you may be buying a totally worthless policy. Chris Elliott, always a pleasure, sir. Really happy you're on the show. Really happy you made it back. And uh, thank yeah, you again thanks. for joining us. Oh, no, you got that it, was man. Fun. My thanks to Chris, and my thanks also to Pico Ayer and Zach Deitwald. And thank you for listening to this Ion Travel Podcast. For more interviews with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this Ion Travel Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen. You can also visit petergreenberg.com for the latest in travel news updates.
1: Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.